Today's sermon text is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks this day that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit through you. Help us as we reflect on these words and on your presence with us to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with you and to to rejoice in your grace and in your provision. These things we ask. In your holy and precious name. Amen. I had a brief but meaningful conversation with a college acquaintance of mine on Facebook this week. It was in the context of a a private kind of secret group. So you might not have, you probably didn't see it because I don't think you're part of that group. That's how Facebook works. But this acquaintance of mine Um, I hadn't really spoken with in a number of years, probably since we had graduated from college. He sang in choirs with Tara and me. And he asked me a question this week. And he asked it in a very 
meaningful and an intentional and non-confrontational way. He was really seeking to hear what I had to say. He asked, why do you believe that Jesus was a real person? Now, you might hear that as kind of a negative, argumentative kind of question, but that's not the spirit in which he asked it. He really wanted to know, why do I believe that Jesus was a real person? I had to sit with that question for a while. Because my first instincts were perhaps to give those quick, glib, short answers that really wouldn't have addressed the heart of his question. I could have said, the Bible tells me so. Well, that's great if you believe what the Bible says. I could have said, it's the way that I was raised, which is great if we're okay with, our, uh, with the, the, the rightness of what our parents have taught us. Okay, and maybe well. I could have said, I don't doubt the reality of other historical figures like Plato and Socrates and Muhammad and Moses. Those were real people. Why wouldn't Jesus have been a real person too? That doesn't really address the question either. I could have said, you just have to have faith. You just have to believe, which really would not have gone anywhere in that kind of conversation. My friend's question deserves a more thoughtful answer. One that respects the deepest questions that we can ask. How do we know that this is true? How do we know that this is right and real? What if we're wrong? What's the meaning of it all? How can we have more faith? So many of these questions, not necessarily my friend's question, but so many of our questions along these lines carry with them an element of spiritual anxiety. Because I think in some ways we very subtly believe that Christian religion depends on our individual performance. And if we show a sign of weakness or doubt or wondering, then we're not holding up our end of the bargain and somehow this whole house of cards will collapse in on itself. How well we live, whether or not we accept Jesus, determines our reward or punishment. And we find some of this idea in Jesus' words himself. In Matthew 25, he talks about the end of the age when the Son of Man returns. He will separate people as one separates sheep from goats. And the determining factor is in how they treat others. Did they care for the sick? Did they care for the poor? Did they visit the, 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 the imprisoned? Um, did they care for widows and orphans? Th- that's the, the division. In in other words, your performance somehow determines how judgment day goes for you. So we adopt a lot of anxiety about that. We develop a lot of anxiety about whether or not you've prayed the prayer. Have you prayed the prayer? And that's code language. We know what that means. Have you accepted Jesus into your heart? Because once you do that, then you're good for all eternity. You see how that's based on human performance? We have tended very subtly, but I think very significantly, to shift the emphasis of our religious beliefs and practices away from God's activity, away from God's character, away from God's purposes, and we have shifted the attention onto ourselves. 
But the way of Christ is not based on human achievement. The way of Christ is based on the gracious generosity of God. Who gives the spirit to all who have faith. That's language that comes from our text, Galatians 3. And as we've talked about in previous, uh, last week, and we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks too, Galatians is a letter that was written to a series of churches, a bunch of churches where there was conflict. And the major conflict going on at the time had to do with whether or not non-Jewish Christians should have to become Jewish Christians. They should have to follow the law of Moses as everybody else did in the Jewish Christian world. The argument was Jesus didn't come to create a new religion, which he didn't really. He came to, to purify and perfect and complete what had come before him, the, the, the way of the people of Israel, the way of the God of the Israelites. And so we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. These uh, Jewish Christians said that you should become a Jewish Christian if you're going to follow Jesus as well. So you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the kosher laws. You have to do all of the things that are required by the law of Moses. The, the trouble with a lot of that thinking is that it, it can very easily seep into, and I don't mean to point fingers because we're guilty of the same thing too. It can seep into the idea that we have to perform well enough in order for God to approve of us. We have to do these things. We have to uh, keep the law in order for God's blessings to be present. But Paul says that's foolish. Paul says that's uh, that's not the way that it should be. It's not that the law is foolish. It's not that observing the law is foolish, but trying to reach the goal by observing the law. That's where the foolishness lies. Well, that raises the question, what's the goal? What is the goal of this life? What's the goal of our spirituality, our religion? Paul's argument, scripture's argument, is that the goal of this life begins and ends with the of God. What is this goal? What is the meaning of the life, uh, of this life? Notice that Paul in this passage, and if you look through Paul, you won't see much of this anywhere. Paul doesn't say a lick about the afterlife. He doesn't say really much about heaven and hell. The phrases he uses in this passage all have to do with the Spirit of God. Receive the Spirit. Beginning with the Spirit. God giving you His Spirit. Receiving the promise of the Spirit. The goal of this life is to live with the Spirit of God. We can only realize this goal through God's grace and generosity. Grace is an undeserved gift. It is mercy. It is something that we are not earning, but are simply recipients of. Grace empowers us to, to carry on and endure and move ahead and thrive in our lives. Grace is ultimately a gift from God. This is part of the nature of God to be gracious, to be giving. 
graciousness is revealed through all of God's generosity toward creation and toward humanity in particular. God is exceedingly generous. And the best descriptions of this generosity from scripture revolve around the gift of God's own spirit to dwell within and among God's people. Think back to the very beginning of scripture, the very opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we kind of stop there. But the very next words are important. The spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Hovering is a word that is very maternal. It's about brooding. It's about waiting. It's about listening and, and yearning for what will come next. In the story where God breathes life into the human being that he has formed out of the clay in Genesis 2, where Adam is formed, Adam the man, and God breathes into him this life. Breath and spirit and life are all the same word in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament. The spirit of God enters this being that God has created. Further down the story, when the Israelites have left slavery in Egypt and they're wandering through the wilderness, they have built a tent, a tabernacle that is to be the dwelling place of God, a mobile structure that will move with them as they wander. And when they complete this structure, the glory of the Spirit of God fills the tabernacle. And finally, when they enter the promised land and build the permanent structure, the temple, and it is completed, the Spirit of God fills the temple to show the people that God is with them in the generosity of the presence of his spirit. Time and time again, as leaders, judges, kings of Israel and Judah are raised up from the people, the scripture says that the spirit of God came upon these individuals so that they might lead. Haggai, the prophet from which we heard uh, Maggie read today, uh, the prophet who was concerned about the rebuilding of the temple after this dwelling place of God had been destroyed and done away with. Haggai says to the people uh, that have returned from exile, don't worry about the city being in ruins, but remember that God is with you. He says, speaking on God's behalf, my spirit is among you. When Jesus arrives on the scene, the Holy Spirit is very much a part of Jesus' story. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, his mother, when she becomes pregnant. When Jesus is baptized, the Spirit of God descends on him in, the, in a form like a dove. When Jesus is driven out into the wilderness to experience his temptation, it is the Spirit of God that pushes him into the wilderness and, and, and is with him in that time of of temptation and testing and preparation throughout Jesus's ministry. The spirit of God is present in what Jesus says and in what Jesus does. Jesus uh, quotes from Isaiah, the old Testament prophet or the, the gospels attribute these old Testament words to Jesus saying, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Jesus quoted Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
After Jesus sent 72 of his disciples on a short-term missions trip of sorts, and they came back telling him the good news of what they had done in the name of, of the Lord, bringing healing to people and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit and praised God because God had hidden these things from the wise and learned, but revealed them to little children. Jesus taught his disciples that if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? John 3.34 says, God gives the spirit without limit. Before Jesus departs, he tells his disciples that the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in his name, will come and teach you all things and remind you of everything that he has said to you. And in John's telling of the resurrection of Jesus after Jesus has died and been raised from the dead, John tells the story of how Jesus appeared to the disciples and breathed on them and said, receive The Holy Spirit. We find that story fulfilled, perhaps. It's kind of an interesting uh, connection between that story and what happens at the day of Pentecost some days later, recorded in Acts 2, when the believers, the 120-some that are gathered there in the upper room, are filled with the Holy Spirit and are empowered to share the good news of Jesus with everyone around them. On and on and on it goes. The Spirit of God is present in the work of God in the people of God as they strive to live as God has called them to live. The evidence of God's grace is the generous gift of the spirit of God who lives within us and among us. That's the goal of this entire endeavor to live a spiritually abundant life where we get mixed up is in trying to reach that goal through our own human effort. We become anxious that our efforts aren't enough to please God, so we try to do more and more to be better and better. God's gracious generosity removes from us the pressure to perform. New life in the Spirit is available to everyone Because God gives it, not because we earn it. What is required of us is to believe what we have heard. Uh, That's what Paul says here in Galatians 3. And he points all the way back to Abraham at the beginning of the story in Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham to leave his country, to leave his people, his father's household, and to go to the land that God would show him. And God promises there in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's God's gracious gift to Abraham. All that Abraham had to do was believe. And then Abraham had to obey. It's a little tricky for us, I think, 
Because we want to put the obedience before the belief. But the belief comes first, and then as a response to God's grace, we obey. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was righteous because he believed. But then as an outworking of his belief, he lived and behaved and moved in a certain way. Abraham's belief and then obedience began a long story of relationship with God between God and the people of God that culminates in Jesus, who, Galatians says, has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing given to Abraham might come to all people, to all nations, through Christ Jesus. So that, by faith, the passage ends this way, so that by faith we might receive eternal life, the promise of heaven, riches and prosperity, so that we might receive happiness and contentment, safety and comfort. No, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the spirit. The goal of this life is to have a spiritually abundant life in Christ. Our responsibility is to have faith. Not to create faith within ourselves in order to please God, but to respond to God's gracious generosity in faith. Our faith begins and ends with God's generosity. So if you struggle with a lack of faith, or if you know someone who does struggle with a lack of faith, that's all right. It's okay. Because God is still gracious. God is still generous. Sometimes we make it harder than it needs to be. We receive the spirit of God, not by doing more or achieving more or living perfectly or convincing ourselves to believe something. We receive the spirit of God simply by believing what we have heard. It's about responding positively to God's gracious generosity. So I encourage you in your practice of everyday spiritual life, whatever that looks like, because each of us practices differently on a daily basis. And and there's always that nagging guilt in the back of everybody's minds, mine included. Oh, I should be doing more. Anybody want to say amen to that? I should be doing more. I recognize that thought in myself and I recognize that in you, but I say that's not the gospel. It's not about doing more. I encourage you to, to do your personal spiritual work, whatever that looks like, as a response to the gracious generosity of God. And then work on imitating God in that way. God is gracious and generous, so be gracious and generous toward others as well. I sat with my friend's question for a while. Why do you believe that Jesus was a real person? And I don't know that I gave him a really good answer. But here's what I said. Here's how I started what I said. I won't read the whole answer. It's a really good question that you ask. And I don't want to answer it glibly or thoughtlessly. Why do I believe that Jesus was a real person? 
Because believing Jesus was a real person draws me closer to God. It helps me see God more clearly. It helps me believe that God is not distant or removed from this world, but is deeply and personally invested in its well-being. It helps me to see God as one who is familiar with both human joy and human suffering. It's a start. I didn't answer the scientific question proving that Jesus is real because honestly that doesn't interest me at all. What really interests me is the connection that Jesus provides to God. So let's respond to God's generosity by putting our faith in Jesus and by living in the promise of the spirit. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that despite our questions, despite our fears, despite our doubts and anxieties, you are gracious and generous. We have a saying that someone could be gracious to a fault and that might apply to you, except nothing that you do is worthy of being called a fault. So we thank you for your extreme graciousness throughout human history in giving your spirit to your people. We pray that in our lives, in this community, in our world, that your spirit would reign supreme, and that we would know your presence through your spirit, the spirit of Christ himself, who will teach us and guide us in all that we are to do. Help us to deal with those anxieties that we have in healthy ways, to rest comfortably in your, in your gracious generosity, and yet not to be sedentary in that generosity, but to get up and move, to be your ambassadors in this world. It's for your name's sake that we give you thanks, and it's for your name's sake that we live. We pray all of these things in that name, even the name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen and coming again Savior. And all of God's people said, Amen.